the great 19th century Scottish novelist Robert Louis Stevenson wrote many books that you've probably heard of, books like Treasure Island or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But Stevenson was also a travel writer, wrote many books of his travels, and he wrote a lesser-known travel book called Edinburgh, Picturesque Notes. And in this book on Scotland, he writes about two unmarried sisters who live together, share the same room. Those two sisters had a falling out on some controversial theological point. It was such a bitter fight that the two women actually never talked to each other again. I mean, that's theology disagreement gone bad. But here's what's interesting. The two of them continued to share a room. They continued to be together. Now, maybe it was a lack of means to move out. Maybe they were trying to keep from shaming themselves, but they stayed together. But here's what they did. In their room, they took a big piece of chalk and they drew a big chalk line down the middle of their room. Now, for some of you children in the room, have you ever done this? Maybe you shared a room with a sibling, and maybe it wasn't a permanent line, but you drew a line, and you said, this is my side, this is your side, this is my stuff, this is your stuff. Don't touch my stuff or cross over into my side of the room. Well, these two sisters did this, but it wasn't a temporary line, it was a permanent line. They divided the doorway in half so each of them could slip in and out of the room without encroaching on the other's side. They cut through the fire in the middle, the fireplace, and so they could do their own cooking and stay warm. For years, they existed in hateful silence, going about their chores in silence, living in silence, eating their meals in silence. When visitors came, the coldness remained. Every night, Stevenson writes, each went to bed listening to the heavy breathing of her enemy. Well, during all this, the two sisters, they kept attending church, kept going to church, kept having their personal devotional times. They kept praying the public prayers in church, just like the prayer we're studying now, the Lord's Prayer. And get this, they actually would pray aloud for one another's sins. Wouldn't talk to each other, but they prayed for the other one to God. Well, the years went by, each sitting at her corner of the fireplace, each sitting at her window, facing old age and sickness. They just grew more angry and more angry by the day. And Stevenson writes at the end of the story, never did four walls look down upon an uglier spectacle than these sisters rivaling in unsisterliness. Forgiveness. Why is it so hard? Maybe you've never put down a chalk line in the middle of your room to separate yourself from someone, but if you built a wall in your heart to keep someone out, have you grown bitter at a friend or family member, a former boss, a coworker? Is there someone you just can't forgive? Well, many of you joined me in praying for our enemies over the past month, 
praying for those who've heard us. Well, today is day 35, which means we're, we're past the 30 days of praying. I know some of you are really happy about that. You can, you can, you can stop praying now. How did it go? How did you do? Were you faithful in praying for them? Are you still holding a grudge? Well, today we'll look at the fifth petition in the Lord's Prayer, forgiveness, and then we'll look at the sixth and final petition, deliverance from temptation. So we'll take them one at a time. So if you're taking notes this morning, it's really just the fifth petition and then the sixth petition, forgiveness and then temptation. We'll look at each of those in turn. So first, let's look at forgiveness, verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Not only do we ask our Father for provision, but we ask him for pardon. It's not difficult to remember to pray for provision. It's not hard to pray for our daily bread. My stomach rumbles. I know I'm hungry. I want food, and I want it now. But it's easy to forget to pray for pardon. Well, at first glance, these words are quite shocking. Father, forgive us as we've forgiven others. I mean, think about it for just a minute. This is a scary prayer. This is terrifying. You're saying, Lord, deal with me as I've dealt with others. Deal with me in the same manner, in the same way that I've dealt with other people. This is wild. Think about what we pray when we say this. I'm asking God to forgive me the same way that I've forgiven others who've offended me. Do you notice that? I mean, on second thought, maybe we don't really want to pray this prayer at all, right? Maybe we just want to skip ahead. Okay, pray for our daily bread, fourth petition, that's all in good. Maybe we should just skip on over to the sixth petition. I wonder how many times we've prayed this prayer while angry or bitter towards someone. Father, forgive me as I've forgiven others, but what if I'm not forgiving toward others? This is a startling prayer. Though it's not surprising because we see throughout scriptures the equating of forgiving others with our own forgiveness. We see it all throughout scripture. In Matthew 5, 7, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful for they... For the ones who are merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. In James chapter 2, it says the same thing. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And then Jesus describes this in the parable of the unforgiving servant. If you've ever read through the Gospels, you've probably come across this parable or, or story that Jesus tells to make a point. And in this parable, you have a king, and he forgives a 10,000-talent debt. Now, that's an astronomical sum. That's millions of dirhams, an impossible debt to pay. God begs for forgiveness, and the king lets him go, lets him out of prison, debt canceled. Well, as soon as the the man leaves prison, though, just moments later, he comes across one of his former slaves. It's a slave who's who's owed him a little bit, maybe the equivalent of 
a couple hundred dirhams, a tiny sum in comparison to what he owed the king. He sees his slave. He demands payment. His slave begs for mercy. But instead of extending mercy, he has that man thrown into prison. Now the king hears of this. The king is angry. The king is furious, and he calls the man there into his palace. And he says, shouldn't you have had mercy on him, you wicked servant? I canceled your debt. And the king puts him back in prison. And then Jesus says at the end, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. This is what Jesus says in verses 14 and 15 of your passage. It's there in the bulletin or in your Bible if you have one. It's an extension of this fifth petition. You may have noticed each week as we read the Lord's Prayer, it's the only petition that has a bit of an appendix to it, a bit of uh, an elaboration. If you forgive, I'll forgive. But if you don't, I won't forgive you. Now, when you've recited and prayed the Lord's Prayer in the past, did you mean to pray this truth? I know you said it, but did you mean to pray it? Augustine called this the terrible petition. Jesus is saying there's a link, there's a connection between God's forgiveness and my willingness to forgive others. But we have to take this seriously. If you're not forgiving others, how could you be forgiven? Forgiving flows from forgiveness. The one who forgives understands their own sin and their own need for forgiveness. Now, when we see what God paid to forgive our sin, it makes us forgiving. Now, of course, this doesn't mean we have to forgive 100% perfectly in order to be saved. Now, forgiving doesn't earn salvation. If so, none of us would be saved. Our forgiveness is, is imperfect. We actually need to be forgiven of our imperfect forgiveness. We need to repent of our failure to forgive properly. I mean, do you see that? But Jesus is saying that one of the chief evidences we are forgiven by God is that we forgive others. It doesn't merit salvation, but it's a fruit. It's a fruit of God's forgiveness for us. Those who have been forgiven, forgive. This is what a Christian does. This is who a Christian is. It's what a Christian does. Oh, friend, are you withholding forgiveness? Well, this prayer recognizes we have no right to seek forgiveness for our own sins if we're withholding forgiveness from others. If you won't forgive, you're putting yourself above God. I mean, imagine this. You go to God and you say, God, you are holy. You are perfect. Forgive my sin. But at the same time, you do that. You go to someone else and say, I won't forgive you. What you're really saying is that you're so holy, you're so righteous, that it's unthinkable that you would forgive that person. It's self-righteousness. God, you can forgive me, but how could I, so great as I am, forgive that person over there? But a Christian understands the seriousness of their sin against God. It's personal. 
Notice Jesus says debtors are forgiven, not debts. Now, both are involved, but the emphasis is on a person. You don't simply forgive the action, but the person. In the same way, our sin isn't some immaterial action. It's sin against the God of the universe. And when we realize the enormity of our own sin is against God, our creator and our maker, it frees us to forgive others. Now, notice that praying this prayer, praying this prayer and, and meaning this prayer is admitting that you're a sinful person. Now, sin here is likened to a debt. In the first couple of songs we sang this morning, they were about a debt that we have, that we owe God. Praying this prayer admits that, that you have a debt. A debt is something that deserves payment for, deserves punishment for. When you pray this prayer, what you're doing is you're taking God's side against your own sin. Now, on our own, we're all separated from God and deserve death and judgment. But the good news of the gospel says that in God's kindness and God's mercy, God came to us, that Jesus, God in the flesh, came to us. He lived a perfect life, and he went to the cross. He went to the cross to save us from our sins. And so today, we can look up to the cross, and we can see it as the ultimate picture of forgiveness. It was costly. It was painful. But it's, it's good news for sinners like you and me. And so, oh friend, if you don't know the forgiveness of God in Christ, turn to him today. Repent of your sins. Trust in him to save you. The only way you can be free to forgive others is if you know this forgiveness yourself. Only when we understand forgiveness can we forgive others. Only when you know that Jesus personally went to the cross for you. Only when you can say, Jesus took my death. Jesus died for me. He took my shame. He faced God's wrath. He took my sins. Only when you can personally say those things, then you can then in turn and properly forgive others. This is not a prayer of forgiveness in the same sense that we ask for forgiveness when we first believe on the Lord Jesus in the moment of salvation. No, this here is a daily prayer. Jesus gives us an example of how we should regularly pray. Jesus is speaking of a forgiveness that comes repeatedly, restoring a relationship with God that's hindered by repeated and continual sin. Because when we become a Christian, we don't become perfect. We don't ever achieve 100% holiness status. We continue to, to struggle. We continue with our sinful nature. We continue facing temptations. And so we continually need to repent and confess of our sins. And we continue to ask for forgiveness, and we continue forgiving others. No, we all want that grace. We all want grace. We love grace. We love it when it comes to us. We love singing amazing grace when it comes to our own lives. But how about it when it's about extending grace to others? We want grace, but we also have to give grace. Grace receivers always become grace givers. You can't help but give it away. When you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you turn around and invite others to the feast. 
Grace is undeserved. We didn't deserve it. And so we hand it out to people who don't deserve it either. So friend, is there anyone you need to forgive? Anyone you've been withholding forgiveness from? Now, forgiveness is different than reconciliation. Forgiveness doesn't mean a relationship is like it was. It doesn't mean full restoration. If you've been sinned against, it might not mean any restoration. There are some ways we've been sinned against where we can't imagine being in the same room with that person again. Sin has consequences. Relationships are broken. But this doesn't mean that we withhold forgiveness. Friend, if you've been abused or hurt in unimaginable ways, I'm sad this is the case. I wish, as your pastor, as an elder, as your friend, I wish I could go back in time, and I wish I could just just stop that from happening. I wish I could go back in time and protect you from whatever you went through. I wish I had some magic ability now just to pray or just to do something where I could just erase that memory from your life. I wish I could do something that would ease your pain and take it away. I could, I would, I, would, I would do that. I would do whatever I could to do that. I'm so sorry for the pain you faced. And I know, I know many of you personally, and I know you've gone through just horrific pain. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. How do you forgive someone who's hurt you so badly and won't even ask for forgiveness? Well, it's certainly not a forgiveness that leads to a restoration. It must mean something else. I think it's better explained as a forgiving spirit or an attitude of forgiveness. It's a relinquishing of one's right to revenge or bitterness. It's an entrusting of God with judgment. It's praying for the one who's offended you. It's asking God to to soften up your own heart if they reach out to you. Well, does this describe your heart toward those who've hurt you? Do you have a forgiving spirit? Does this describe you? Well, if not, why not? Are you afraid of being hurt again? Maybe you can't imagine ever getting over this. The, the, the weight of the pain is just too much to bear. You don't want to think about it again. You don't want to reopen the wounds again. You can't see a way you would ever let them off the hook for their crime. I don't know what it is for you. What's keeping you from a forgiving spirit? Forgiveness, it's not a denial that something's ever happened. No, forgiveness doesn't mean you have to pretend that it didn't happen. No, to forgive doesn't mean to forget. Forgiveness doesn't mean you, you, just, you just move on as if everything is okay, as if you just have to kind of suck it up and just get on with life. No, forgiveness is not even minimizing the offense. 
Forgiveness is not the same thing as forgetting. Forgiveness is a decision to sacrifice. Forgiveness is a decision to give up your rights to justice and anger and to entrust the God of all justice to be the judge. Now, this is costly. This is hard. It, is, it isn't easy. To forgive means to cancel a debt when you feel like you have every right to demand payment. This is really a miracle. We can only do this because God has done this for us. We can forgive the most heinous crimes against us when we understand the costliness of the cross. If you sit back and you say, there's no way I could ever forgive that person, or you say, I will never forgive them, well, if that's you, then perhaps you don't understand the grace of God. Oh, friend, do you know this grace? Oh, look to the cross. Look to Jesus. Look to the one who died for you. Look to the one who canceled your debt. Look to the one who's invited you into his family and pray this prayer. Pray this prayer asking God to forgive you of your sins and pray for strength to forgive others. That's the only way we can do this. Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's the fifth petition. And in many ways, it would certainly be easier to move from the fourth straight to the sixth. But there's a reason Jesus has us in there. We need, we need this help. We need this, this prayer. But we can't end there. There's one last petition, the sixth petition, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, this last statement should probably be understood as the negative and positive aspects of the same petition. The way to interpret this petition is by addressing both parts, not only lead us into temptation, but also deliver us from evil. What we're praying here is rather than facing temptation, we're asking God to deliver us from evil. The sinner who's been forgiven their sin longs to continue to be delivered from it. This petition doesn't mean that God takes us into temptation. James chapter 1 is clear. When tempted, no one can say God is tempting me, nor does God tempt anyone. Nor is it possible to be delivered from all temptations. No, we all face them. We live in continual temptation. This prayer is that God would not allow us to come under the sway of temptation and be overcome by it. So, Father, lead us not into temptation, but lead us away from it. Lead us far away from temptation. Lead us to places of protection. Lead us to a place to be kept holy. What Jesus is saying here is not only do we pray and ask him for provision, but we also depend on God in our fight for holiness. Our fighting sin is not something we can do in our own strength, but by the grace of God. Well, the first step in overcoming temptation is to realize that no one is above temptation. We all need help. Well, back in 16th century England, there was a story of two men who were to be executed by Queen Mary. Queen Mary was also called Bloody Mary, and she would execute Christians, execute those for following Jesus. 
These two men were to be condemned. They were companions. One man was brash. He was bold. He seemed faithful. He said, I'm ready to go to death. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to meet Jesus. And when I get there to the stake, I'm going to be the man. Well, there's the, the second companion, the second man. He was trembling. He was really, 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 really nervous. He hated facing suffering and pain. And so he was doubting and struggling and wondering whether at the very first feel of the fire burning his skin that he was going to recant. And so he cried out to God and asked for God's help. He was praying. And he asked that first God, the the bold one, he asked him to pray for him. The bold guy's response was to mock him and say, you're weak. What are you, what are, what are, what are you doing anyway? You are a weak person. And he made fun of him and rebuked him for being so weak. Well, the day came and the two men were brought out to be burned at the stake. The bold man, at the first sight of the fire, recanted. They let him go and he went on to live an apostate life. The second man, the one trembling, the one weak, the one asking for prayer, the one acknowledging his temptation, stood firm as a rock, praising God as he died. Now, friends, the first step in overcoming temptation is to realize that you can't do it on your own, that you're not above it, that every one of us could fall. It can happen to anyone. My old youth pastor, Keith Chansey, was a hero of mine. We called him Chansey, and he was the most godly, the most joyful man that I had ever known. And so my 16-year-old self was sitting in his house one day, and it was shocking to hear this godly man tell us a group of, 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 of boy teenagers that he had to guard his own heart against sin because he was tempted. Chancey said that every trip he would go on, every ministry trip, every time he would leave home, he said he was susceptible to immorality and even adultery. I I couldn't believe it. This hero of mine was was saying this. I mean, this is Chancey, the greatest and most godly leader I'd ever known. What he was saying was that it can happen to anyone. The first step to dealing with temptation is to realize you could fall. Admit this to God by praying this prayer, Lord, deliver me. Well, second step to dealing with this is to admit it to others. Confess your temptation to others. This is the way the Lord protects us from temptation. The Bible speaks of of sin and temptation and the goal of getting them into the light in order to kill them. Sin thrives in darkness. It thrives in secret. James tells us to confess to one another. I've heard many say in my decade plus here, uh, it's too shameful to share with somebody. My culture says you don't share your sins and temptations with anyone. But I talk to God, and so me and God, we're we're tight. We're we're close. God knows my sins. I talk to him, so, so everything is okay. But this is a lie. You're not obeying God to get your sin into the light. The way we do that is to confess. If there are sins and temptations that no one knows about in your life, then that's a problem. So are there any secret temptations in your life? 
Do you have people you're honest with? This doesn't mean you confess your temptations to everyone. We don't have a confessional table at the connections desk today where you can just go and confess all your sins. I'm not telling you to list your top 10 sins on Facebook today or to, to share a story on Instagram every time you have an immoral thought. You don't need to tell the whole world when you're struggling with something, but you need at least a couple or a few trusted friends or church leaders or pastors who know what's going on in your heart and mind. You need to share your temptations with someone local. Don't make the mistake of just sharing with someone way back home. You need to share with someone that's going to walk alongside with you, someone who's going to walk side by side, someone who you do life with, someone who knows you and can watch your life and can help you walk with God. And notice I didn't say share your sins, but I said share your temptations. Now, of course, you should confess sins. But we need to go beyond that. We need to confess even our secret thoughts and confessions. We need to confess our temptations before they turn into sin. So what are you tempted by at the moment? What's going on in your mind? What sin are you entertaining in your heart? What sin have you thought about in the privacy of your life? Maybe you haven't acted out on it yet. But what have you been entertaining in those down moments, in the break times, the times of daydreaming. We think our temptations are no big deal, but they're just one baby step away from God in the wrong direction. And the problem is, once we take a hundred or a thousand baby steps in the wrong direction from God, eventually we're going to fall off the cliff. Eventually we're going to fall down. And then all of a sudden, You're either caught in your sin and everybody finds out, or maybe down there at the bottom of the valley, you finally say something. But it's so late. So confess your temptations quickly. Don't believe the lie that you should wait. You're you're probably thinking, it'd be so painful and so shameful if I share my temptations now. But the problem is, if you wait to share tomorrow or another day, it will just become more and more painful. One little white lie leads to a bigger one, leads to a bigger one, and to a bigger one. Now, here's the truth. As I've been a pastor these years, most people confess their sin when they've jumped and fallen off the cliff, and they're there at the bottom of the valley. Their relationships are already imploded. They finally raise the flag for help. But their sin has destroyed them. You're so far off the road that you're at the bottom of the valley. And if you get there, it's hard to climb back up. There's always hope, but there are consequences to sin. There's a regaining of trust that has to happen. There's pain and shame. It's hard to climb back up. It's like going uphill in skis. Skis were made to go downhill. Confess quickly and confess it all. Don't hold back out of shame. We might be tempted to just share a little bit of our temptation over here with this person, a little bit of our temptation over here with that person, maybe a little more of our temptation over here to that person. And we do that in such a way that it makes ourselves feel good about ourselves, but we really never told the whole story to one person or a couple people. Does anyone know what's really going on in your life? Does anyone know the full story? 
Oh, friend, I urge you, confess your temptations before you fall into sin, before you fall over the cliff of your sin and hit rock bottom. This week I was looking at some stories and some illustrations, and I was reminded this week of one article, and I, I pulled it up and, and reread it, and it's an article about the alligator snapping turtle. Now, these are massive turtles, over 100 kilograms heavy. They eat fish. They even eat small alligators. In fact, they kind of look like a mix of a small alligator and a turtle, a real interesting animal. They catch their prey by lying completely still on the floor of the river with its mouth opened wide. And at the end of the turtle's tongue, there's a, a small pink-looking, worm-like substance there at the end of the tongue. And so when it opens its mouth, it looks like there's a worm floating around in the water. And so a fish sees the worm and swims right into the turtle's mouth, right into this trap. And as soon as the fish is in there, of course, the snapping turtle snaps its jaws, trapping the fish and having dinner. This is what temptation does. It looks good. It looks amazing. We see it, but it's under the guise of something else. And so as soon as we go after it, we think it's going to give us joy. We think it's going to give us happiness, but then we go after it, and we find ourselves trapped in our sin. Oh, friends, get your temptations out into the light before you're trapped. Get your temptation out there. Even when you see it out into the distance, even when you're looking at it, even when you're tempted, and, and friends, we're all tempted by something. Every single, single one of us believes the lie at some time that that thing, that that sin is going to bring us more joy than Jesus will. I don't know what it is for you. It could be money. It could be sex. It could be some immoral business activity. It could just be being known, being liked. Whatever it is, power, control, comfort, whatever's the underlying idol that you're looking after that you think is going to give you more joy than Jesus, oh, friend, it's going to fail you. You will be trapped. And so what Jesus is telling us here is he's telling us to pray for protection. He's telling us to pray that the Lord would deliver us from evil and lead us as far away from temptation as possible. Oh, friend, pray that prayer and live it out. Forgiveness, temptation, these are, these are hard ones. These are hard things to end the prayer with. Maybe you've known these things. Maybe you've prayed the words of this prayer all your life. You know, we've been reciting the prayer the past couple of weeks, and it just looked like most of you just knew it intuitively. A lot of you had it memorized maybe from childhood. You didn't try to memorize it. You just knew the words. You've been reciting the prayer, but maybe you didn't know the meaning of what you were praying. Well, how do we pray? Well, Jesus has told us over these past three weeks before we ask God anything, we talk to the Father about the Father. We praise his name. We praise before we petition. And when we petition, we pray for things like forgiveness and deliverance from sins, deliverance from temptation. Oh, Redeemer Church, may this prayer be forever on our hearts today and forevermore. As the musicians come up to the front, let's pray. Oh, Father, help us be a forgiving people.
Help us be a people who flee temptation. Help us be a community who constantly marvel at the grace found in the gospel of Christ. Oh, would the supremacy of Jesus reign in our hearts, and would we want nothing else than to honor you with our lives and with our relationships? Would Christ be exalted today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.